Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Hi, I'm Chris Jordan at the Global Development Institute and the Communications and Impact Manager here. Uh, and I'm joined today by a couple of researchers, uh, Dan Brockington from the Sheffield Institute of International Development and Nikki Banks from the, the Global Development Institute. You've just done some really interesting new research. Can you tell me what it's about? Thanks, Chris. Um, basically, over the last few years, we have been conducting an analysis of the UK's development NGO sector. Um, Here in the UK, the UK development NGO sector matters. It's hugely influential at home and abroad and is a major player in the global fight against poverty and inequality. Um, We thought this was worthy of more analysis. And we were interested because the largest charities, the NGOs in the UK, are indeed in many cases development charities. And we know about many of these organisations individually But we wanted to study them as a sector, as a group, which included the the largest and the much smaller organisations, to explore the patterns of that sector as a whole. Because we found from previous studies of of different sectors that you can learn a lot from looking at the group. So I've worked with um, conservation NGOs, for example, working across sub-Saharan Africa. And you can see um, how they're collaborating, where they're spending their money, how that matches with conservation priorities, and how... the the needs to increase or to to redistribute um, funding vary. And had people done this before, given it's such a a big, influential sector? Um, Yes and no. Yes, there have been studies on the the sector as a whole in the UK, but they've tended to focus on a small sample. For example, um, Bond, a network of development organisations here, looks at samples within its own membership, quite understandably. Um, We also have uh, the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, the NCVO, that has been doing annual uh, surveys of trends across the sector, but that uses a different sample every year. So there are are sources of information, but not that covers all of the things we wanted to cover across all of the years that we wanted to cover. Um, So this is a a more ambitious uh, research effort? It was more ambitious. (laughs) So, so Perhaps to... we didn't realise quite how ambitious it was going to be. Yes. So go tell Too me, ambitious. What, what did you do? how did you approach it? Well, we first of all had to work out where to get the list of development um, NGOs from. Um, and we're fortunate because they self-identify as development NGOs, they're part of networks, um, of which we ourselves are part of. Um, so we could go to the membership of Bond, the, the main organisation, which is based in London. Then there's the Scottish Development Alliance. There's a, um, there's a range of regional sort of umbrella membership organisations. Indeed. That, well, there's the, 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 the British one, Bond, there's a Scottish one, um, there's a, a South Wales one, there's even a, a Yorkshire one, which I quite liked. The, the Yorkshire, Scotland and the UK are on, on, on a par. And the Welsh Hub, Pumri, Indeed. Africa. Um, so those were very useful sources. We could access who was members of those and put those together, making sure we were removing any organisations that overlapped. Um, there's also 
organisations like the Small Charities Commission um, and the Foundation for Social Improvement. So we basically tried to find as many umbrella organisations and compile a list there. Um, that didn't give us everything, we kept searching. So we looked at um, grantees of the Department for International Development and Comic Relief. They're obviously working in international development, so we would get other organisations we hadn't found there. Um, likewise, we looked at the Charities Commission website, where you can identify charities that are self-identifying as working in areas of overseas development assistance or in sort of more specific things like famine relief. And that expanded our database even further. In fact, um, the overseas development assistance and famine relief category in the Charities Commission database, which only applies to England and Wales, but it still yielded over 11,000 organisations, so we were in fact far beyond our capacity to record all that information. And so we set up some rules of exclusion, which are really important to understand, because our database is not the list of all development organisations, it's, it's a list which we've compiled according to certain rules, and we need to be aware of these rules. The most important is that we've only included organisations if they were spending, on average, more than £10,000 between 2011 and 2015. Um, excluding the smaller ones doesn't change the financial picture very much because they're spending such tiny amounts of money, and it simply makes the task doable. They're incredibly important organisations, they, they matter a great deal in terms of the number of organisations, but it's simply beyond our capacity to, to take to, to document. And then there was a challenge of the religious um, organisations as well. Um, and there, um, we took the stance that if an organisation was doing work that um, looked like a secular organisation, then we would include it. If it was basically about uh, building churches or building mosques, um, then we wouldn't include it. But we would. Uh, this is not something that we. This is not because we think religion isn't part of development or, or that sort of spiritual growth is some, somehow excluded from what well-being means, that's, that's not our, 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 our meaning. And Duncan Green's made it very clear that religious organisations are fundamental to any sort of development activity. Um, it's, it's simply a capacity issue again, because um, if you include all the religious organisations then you go way beyond our capacity to cope with them. So you've, you've compiled the database of essentially what people would think of as, as, as typical development NGOs. Um, so it's, also, it's also worth mentioning that we, um, in our desire to make sure we captured as many organisations as we could within those patterns of inclusion, we've also spent a lot of time trying to contact NGOs. We've sent out the database, including facilities for NGOs to isolate their own findings, um, to one, make sure that they're on there, and to two, to check that we've got their data correct. So all of these kind of things we've done to make sure we've got as representative a picture as we can and to make sure that that's accurate and just to engage with NGOs more generally because it's been an important part of the research process. So how many have you actually found? 898, <laughs> the last count. Um, we, we, we had to carefully make sure that um, all our rules of exclusion and inclusion were, were well applied, and I was delighted because we were on 906, um, but the last sifting um, took us down to eight, just below 900. And, uh, and just methodologically, this is a project we've been working on for nearly two years now, and even in the, as recently as the last month or two, we've been adding organisations, so we've done what we can to capture a lot of organisations. But it's only a first stage, really. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge number. 
uh, and presumably you've got all the information of, uh, of, of how big those charities are, what they're, yeah. uh, what they're spending, what they're um, bringing Well, in. it leads to really interesting breakdowns, as Dan said, of the structure of the sector, what it looks like um, in terms of its geographical de- distribution, in terms of the distribution of income across different size classifications of NGO, um, in the historical trends across the sector, um, in where and how those NGOs are funded. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting trends emerging. But putting that together required compiling data from a, a number of different sources, not all of which were compatible. So we could get the basic income and expenditure data for English and Welsh NGOs from 2003 through to the 2015. Um, we could add then Scottish data ourselves, which we could get, take back to 2009. Um, we could get um, the sources of um, income, where the money's coming from, from the NCVO Almanac. Correct. Which is um, a, a, a sample that they collect of all the largest organisations and gradually smaller samples of the smaller organisations. And from that you can work out where the money's coming from the public, from government, from businesses, from other charities, from contracts with overseas governments and so on. And so that was for a limited number of organisations... Um, we got just under 600 yes. 580 or thereabouts um, and that goes back to 2009 right. so it's worth highlighting that all of the information that we've been um, drawing together is from publicly available sources it's been a huge effort drawing those bits of information from different sources the Charities Commission, the NCVO filling in gaps where there might not have been a particular financially financial year included um, trying to reconcile issues with different financial year reporting end dates. If but you want more about that, <laughs> I, I just love talking yeah. about financial years. You can get lost in the detail, but I think for now it's suffice to say that it has all drawn upon publicly available data, but that had to date not been compiled yeah. in this way before. And, and your plan to make your database public? Absolutely. Well. It already is online. It's available for NGOs to check their data uh, in a very simplistic way. They don't have to trawl through a database of 800 organisations. It's simply a matter of um, popping in a Charities Commission number and that will bring up the information for each NGO. And once it's been checked or people have the opportunity to go through it, then yes, the whole thing will be available for anybody to use. Um, it's, it's already publicly available data. We've just collated it and we'd, we'd be delighted if other researchers, other organisations found it useful. So I'm intrigued. Uh, you have this treasure trove of data. Um, what were the key findings? What's the really interesting bits? Where to start? <laughs> um, I think important really is to talk about the, the big finding, which is the sheer scale um, and size of the UK international development sector, which is spending just under £7 billion in 2015. So that's the UK's development NGO sector spending nearly half of the UK government's overseas development assistance. I think most people in the UK would think the sector was big and would think the sector was making an impact, but the sheer size of that, I, I think, would um, astound both the kind of public in general and people working in the development sector as well. And even if you take it. Um, out the overlap, so the fact that some of that money is organisations um, funding other organisations' work, or, or and indeed some of that money comes from the um, 
DFID budget itself, um, you're still going to end up with a very large number, which is a very significant proportion of the um, ODA expenditure. Mm. And what does that look like in context? Is, is development the, the biggest um, source of charitable? Uh, um, it's actually just a drop in the ocean. Um, so through the Charities Commission, you can look at um, funding broken down by NGOs spending it here at home in the UK and charities spending it overseas. And then, of course, there's a few NGOs that do a bit of both. Um, funding in, on development is only around 10%, less than 10%. Of, less than 10%, yeah. 10%. So I think it's around 58 billion overall charitable spending. Of, Which is correct? just spent in the UK. Which is just spent in the UK. And the total budget, um, of, of the total turnover of the charities in the UK is, is um, £67 billion a year. It's fantastic. Mm. It's an extraordinary amount. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you could say that charity begins at home in the UK mm. because the vast majority of money is spent by charities who only operate in, the, in these, these countries, yeah. this country. Which is actually against some of the things that we see in the media narrative of we need to be doing less abroad and more at home. That's exactly what's happening here. Yeah. Um, and it's important to contextualise the international narrative against the national picture as well. Yeah, so charity is beginning at home, it's just not ending there. Absolutely. Um, so in, in terms of the sector itself, uh, what, what, what did you, you find? Um, how, how does it break down? Um, there's interesting findings across a variety of things. Um, structurally, and again, this is things that people would um, have a general idea of from working in the sector but might not know the, the details and how they play out. Structurally, there's quite big inequalities in size and geographical location. Um, those go hand in hand. So in terms of income, uh, the largest proportion, around 88% of funding uh, across the whole sector is concentrated within eight or ten large of the largest organisations. Geographically too, we see a predominance of organisations in London and the South East, and again, those tend to be the biggest organisations. Um, that's not a, f a finding in itself that would be surprising, but again, we're putting numbers that um, I think would surprise by the, the, the extent of those um, inequalities. And there's been lots of doom and gloom within the sector, certainly since the financial crisis, lots of NGOs cutting back on staff or going through big reorganisations. Um, what did you find in terms of income? Well, this again was a su surprise. Um, so the sector has been growing in terms of the number of organisations pretty much continually. Um, as far as we can go back to, to, to 2003, um, since this, which is the start of our Charity Commission records. Um, when you add the Scottish data, it, it um, receives a bit of a, a jump in 2009, but it's basically um, growing upwards. Um, and the, um, the size is not just the number of organisations which have continued to grow, um, but the um, income that they're getting as well. Um, and this is um, both in terms of the, the larger organisations and the smaller organisations. So of the 80 organisations which are spending that 88% um, of, the, of, of, the, of the funds, um, they appear to be thriving, as are the smaller organisations which um, are part of that. 
And th those funds are increasing across all sources of development finance, uh, the public, business, other charities, the government. Uh, there's been a, an increasing trend across the whole sector from all of those sources. Indeed. Um, I think Dan will talk about this in more detail, but one of the findings that has really surprised me is quite how strong um, a contributor the British public is. Uh, they are overwhelmingly the, the biggest um, source of development finance for overseas development and contribute more, have contributed more, and this isn't just for one year, patterns of, of funding, have contributed more than the other three top uh, contributors together. So that's the government, businesses and other charities. So the British public <laughs> mm -hmm. have contributed more than all three of those sources. That to me was astounding. Mm. So it's in excess of 40%. Um, now the, the proportion of, of, of funding from the public has declined marginally. So it went down from 45 to 41. But in absolute terms, it's still increasing across the five years of our study of, of income sources by um, hundreds of millions of pounds. And is that what you expected to see? Because that takes me by surprise. It definitely was not what we were expecting, and it's um, a finding that we're still exploring, really, because it, it's, it doesn't match uh, the narratives that we're seeing. It doesn't match other, other studies of UK giving that um, are currently around. So it, it's definitely worth, worth so, so does development seem to be outperforming other charitable sectors? We haven't looked at that. So we haven't explored the role of public giving compared to um, the other fields. Um, a bond report suggested that um, development charities have been growing um, more and faster than other charities generally across the sector um, post the financial crash. So there's, that, that is a possibility. Our, we don't have the data to, to, to determine that. Okay. But within development, what do you think accounts for this trend? Where, where's the growth in numbers and, and money coming from? Well, it would be fantastic if we could answer that and then direct <laughs> organisations to the, to the source of this income. I'm afraid it, it, um, it's not that tr uh, clear to us. Um, it, just to make clear um, how strange the, the findings are, the, there are atti the attitudes trackers which are tracing um, general public responses to international development. And these appear to be showing that um, the British public generally is getting increasingly, um, getting, is, is decreasingly supportive of aid. They, they're getting increasingly um, turned off by it. Um, and yet we have an increase in public support. Um, then there are the, the Charities Aid um, Foundation, the CAF um, public giving surveys, which survey 5,000 people a year in a, in a, in a repeated panel survey. Um, and they show no particular change in public giving and fairly low median giving rates. Not the, that public which CAF is surveying could not explain the increase in giving that we're receiving, we're finding. Um, and even more strangely, if you look at real household disposable income in the UK, for the five years of, of, the, of the study that we, we have, um, that income is declining and public giving is increasing. Moreover, when public income has a trough, then public giving has a peak in our data. They are, they are virtually opposite. It is um, quite the conundrum. <laughs> that's the thing, yeah. So do you have any ideas uh, what, what accounts for that? Um, again, the data 
isn't such that it can tell us the answers, so we can only infer from that data what we can. Um, our first inference is that that giving is um, largely driven by higher net worth individuals. The, they're not necessarily represented in these studies of the UK population as a whole, and the capacity they have to uh, almost skew the whole sectoral picture because of the value of their net worth would make sense of those findings. Um, so it could suggest that the richest people in the UK are giving very large sums of money to the development sector, um, and that they're driving some of those kind of results. And that's reinforced by the sorts of organisations which have benefited most from the increase in public giving. Because the, the largest NGOs are, are doing reasonably well, um, but not as well in terms of public giving as the slightly smaller, niche organisations who are able to pitch a particularly um, important topic, a particular idea, and also are of a size such that a £10 million donation would make an extraordinary difference to the organisation and their cause. So, so if you do want to change the world and you have the means to do so, then that's the sort of organisation which would appeal to you. And uh, does it look like these kind of trends will will continue, do you think? Do you think, will the, will the sector continue to expand? I think the signs are there that it will continue. Um, these trends that we're talking about in terms of continued and growing funding have withstood the financial crash. Uh, they continue to increase despite falling household income. Um, we haven't shown, we've, we've looked for signs of whether the sector might reach a ceiling and it, it just doesn't seem mm. to be there. Um, and, a, and another study um, conducted by um, John Micklewright and others, um, which was undertaken in the 1990s, found that giving also was recession-proof in the recession of the early 1990s. So that the Development NGOs have been here before and they, 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 they survived that problem, they survived it again. So if a decline happens, it will be the first and it will be um, particularly unusual circumstances which could lead to that. Given the trends in inequality in this country, um, the power of the rich to give is only growing. Mm. And you've been looking, you've looked well at um, the fundraising costs of, of NGOs, which is uh, a perennially uh, sensitive subject. What, what did you find when you looked at uh, fundraising costs? Well, this was fascinating. Um, we realised that there are two sorts of um, organisation at work. There are those um, who are fundamentally voluntarist. They don't count the cost of their work and they certainly don't count the cost of their fundraising which means that they appear to invest very little in fundraising um, and also means means that they appear to get extraordinary returns of a hundred to one or a thousand to one um, I mean remember ten to one annually would be quite ridiculous um, most organisations are doing extremely well on, on, on five and six to one um, imagine if that, that happened to your savings once a year um, we'd be happy people um, but these organisations are doing phenomenally well, partly because they, they don't count the cost of the volunteers who are um, taking part in their fundraising activities. Um, and they tend to be raising smaller amounts of money. Um, it's extremely clear from our data that if you are a large organisation and if you need to raise 50 million or 100 million, then you need to invest in that fundraising. You get a fantastic return, um, but you will get the money that you need. So we divide these organisations into two sorts. There are the voluntarists, who don't count the 
cost of fundraising and don't raise that much. And then there are the revenue strategists, um, and they measure their success by whether or not they get the money. Um, and that is determined by how much money they need for their tasks. Interesting. So you have this, uh, it sounds like an amazing set of, of data and an amazing set of, of initial findings, um, which seems to throw out a whole set of new questions, as is the way with academic research. Um, what's, what's next? Where do you want to go here? From here. Um, you're absolutely right, Chris. The, the data we have so far introduces lots of new questions and we look forward to exploring them. There's a, certainly several areas that we'd like to explore um, in future, some of which, which will require new research and others which come from using this existing data in, in new ways. So on the one hand, we, ha we haven't yet got to grips with the idea of partnerships across the sector. Um, we have some capacity within the database to look at that more closely and we'll certainly be doing so. So we, we're interested in the sector as a whole, um, in individual NGOs and what they're doing on their own, but also how they're working across the sector and internationally, um, how those partnerships are working. There's also the really important question of how effective is all this? So I started off by saying the UK development NGO sector has a real power and influence at home and abroad, but we'd really like to try to get to grips with how that's playing out in practice. Uh, that's both a question of what NGOs are actually doing overseas in terms of programmes and development focus, um, and also the ways through which they're operating overseas. So investigating more the, um, the aid chain with UK NGOs sometimes operating as donors um, within uh, countries overseas, operating with, in partnership with local organisations. That's something that Manchester has a long um, history of researching and uh, sometimes critiquing, and that's something that we'd like to explore a bit further. And one of the joys of this project has been that the engagement and um, critical discussion with colleagues in the NGO sector. Um, we've been able to use publicly available data all the way through, um, and I think the next stage really is to carry on those conversations um, to work out what our colleagues in the NGO sector would find interesting to do with this and whether there are ways of, that we could extend it. Um, new questions we could ask which could take us beyond the publicly available data into action research projects um, which involve our, our colleagues and partners. Yeah, uh, and, and it, it seems like there's, this might be useful for the sector itself, there's useful insights in there, do you think? Yes, we hope so. And our initial feedback is that it that it is a useful resource and again that it is providing hard hard statistics and tangible evidence to sort of the trends that are more commonly uh, noticed across the sector and then these new findings which totally stand out and are very surprising which also gives them mm. um, new insight to, to and questions to yeah. ask themselves. And to be useful, um, be, be most useful, um, requires working out what the right question will be, and that's part of the co-design process that we're undertaking with, with um, different NGOs. Great. It's, it's really fascinating stuff, and I can't wait to see where this goes next. Um, but thank you, Nikki, thank you, Dan, for, for joining this, me this morning, um, and we look forward to hearing more. Thank, thank you, you very much. <laughs>